We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place exclusive interviews with players coaches and team executives streaming live and always available on demand stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the odyssey app there's been a lot of talk this year about defunding the police and the inequities of our criminal justice system and it's all been against the backdrop of outrage over the killing of forgery suspect george floyd in minneapolis and a global pandemic Two weeks ago, two groups, Cabrini-Green Legal Aid and the Illinois Justice Project, assembled high-powered panels of experts to discuss the issues of policing, incarceration, and getting prison inmates back into society. I was honored to moderate the panel discussion on incarceration in the courts, and this weekend we're going to let you listen in on an eye-opening discussion that touches not only on the rights of the accused, but your safety. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. The July 24th event was titled Justice 2020, The Demand for Equity. The day's first session was on policing and included Mayor Lightfoot and Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raoul. Later, there was a panel on post-release and re-entry featuring Illinois House Majority Leader Jahan Gordon Booth and State Corrections Director Rob Jeffries. The panel I led included Illinois Supreme Court Chief Justice Ann Burke, Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle, Joby Cates, the founder and executive director of the group Restore Justice, and Sharon Mitchell, executive director of the Illinois Justice Project, one of the day's hosts. First, a little background. Putting people behind bars by most measures should not be a simple decision. The effects are so far reaching for the inmate, for the people left behind, for the correction system, and of course, for the economy. But Illinois has a lot of people behind bars. Figures from the Illinois Department of Corrections pegged to the prison population at just over 38,000 at the end of last year. It's probably lower now because of coronavirus, but that's still more than 20% below the peak population of 49,400 back in February of 2013. And the Civic Federation says the department spends about $1.5 billion a year. And remember, that's just the state prison population. The counties are issues unto themselves, all 102 of them. They each have a sheriff, state's attorneys, and judges all making decisions about who does or doesn't remain in custody and how they travel through our justice system. So the aim of the discussion was to look at the state of things as they are, what's working and what's not. And we wanted to talk about what should be as well. First to speak was Chief Justice Ann Burke, who was appointed to the appellate court in 1995. Elected the next year, and she's risen to the highest levels. Justice Burke talked about the kinds of reforms the court system has tried to make in recent years. To me, the critical um, lesson to be drawn from this experience is that collaboration among stakeholders is the key to achieving any successful reform. 
Now, deep in the pandemic, uh, this lesson has truly been brought to home. People often forget, as Craig had mentioned, how large and how diverse the Illinois court system is. There are 24 circuits in our state. Only six of these circuits, including Cook County Circuit, are within the confines of a single county. The remaining circuit courts contain between two and 12 counties each. What this means is that any attempt to address issues such as incarceration rates, the health and safety of detainees, will involve the local authorities, multiple county sheriffs, multiple county health departments, and multiple county boards. Collaboration in, is the only path forward. Now, if there was ever a silver lining um, uh, to this pandemic for the judicial branch, it may be that it has forced greater interaction and collaboration among all our stakeholders on a statewide basis, which has been a very good consequence. To give just a few examples of this I have that have occurred over the past four months, in early March, the Supreme Court began holding COVID-19 court leadership calls with judges, clerks, and key staff from around the state, the appellate courts and circuit courts throughout the state. First calls were via teleconference, then we moved to Zoom in April. During these calls, all the judges and staff and stakeholders shared their experiences and shared what they were doing about things such as remote bond hearings via Zoom, holding court calls in local schools, auditoriums, because the, the court system or the court place of justice, the courthouse, wasn't large enough to have safe distancing, and also VFW halls around the state. And uh, we also had collaboration within this leadership of maybe 100 people on Zoom calls to help amend Supreme Court rules to ease the ability to work together. There have been over 20 statewide hearings like this. Now in April, we have put together a statewide juvenile court leadership uh, with administrative office, Children and Family Services Division of our court, and the Department of G uh, DCFS to discuss whether or not the juvenile court issues are being included in all the property, uh, properly Zoom calls. Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle was next, and she took time to praise Justice Burke as a true reformer who's been a partner in making the court system more equitable in a number of ways. She focused on the issue of cash bond and how the Cook County court system is moving away from using money as a way to decide who stays in jail awaiting trial and who goes free. The Office of the Chief Judge invested in training and implemented a new uh, risk assessment tool. We increased releases without putting the public at risk, and I think it's important to understand that until 2020, we were seeing simultaneously a reduction in the population in the Cook County Jail and a reduction in crime. 2020 has been an anomaly in many respects, which I'm sure we'll get to later. Um, over time, the jail population has declined considerably. In 2013, when we began in earnest our collaborative efforts, the jail population, the daily jail population, averaged between 10 and 11,000 people. It's now down to about 4,900 people. And at the height of the pandemic, it was down to 4,000 due to the very concerted efforts, not just of 
the public safety stakeholders, but our partners in the criminal justice reform arena to get as many people out of the jail as we could safely because the jails, as we know, are petri dishes for the ep epidemic. As I said, over time, the jail population has declined considerably from 10 or 11,000 down to 49,000 now. And that meant that fewer people who were too poor to afford to pay their cash bonds and those charged with nonviolent offenses have a better chance of being released either on their own recognizance or on electronic monitoring than they did in prior years. With the COVID-19 pandemic, we've, as I said, we rapidly reduced the jail population down to almost 4,000 people. The good news is, is that we did this with as a team, not only public safety stakeholders, but our partners in the advocacy arena. The state's attorney and the public defender directed their staff to work together to find people who could be safely released. And local partners paid bonds for county residents. The Cook County Health staff at the jail did amazing work and turned the tide and got control of the COVID-19 transmissions in the jail. We're at the point now where new cases in the jail are coming from the community and not within the jail population. And we have the capacity as a result of the sheriff's good work and the work of our Bureau of Asset Management to quarantine and isolate those individuals that uh, require either isolation or quarantine. Next was Joby Cates, whose group Restore Justice focuses on issues surrounding long-term incarceration. We love to say in the society, if you did the crime, you should do the time. But the truth is in Illinois, the time is completely radically different based on arbitrary lines in the legal sand that were drawn by different groups of people in the General Assembly at different times over the past several decades. They make no sense. And they lead to um, sort of a nonsensical uh, uh, situation where you could have two men sitting in the same cell during a lockdown, during COVID-19, one of whom is serving 15 years for the same crime as the other who is serving 30 and will do every day of those sentences. What this practically means during COVID of the, I know, uh, Craig, you mentioned that there are probably around 37, 38,000 people in Illinois prisons right now. The, they haven't publicly updated these numbers recently, but there should be less because of the, all of the things that Chief Justice Burke and, and uh, Chairman Preckwinkle mentioned. There should be less. It should be closer to 34,000 right now because of the transfer halt and other changes in the courts and slowdowns and the like. But... Even given that, there are perhaps 8,000 aging or elderly people who happen to be in prison today, regardless of their level of rehabilitation, regardless of whether they've aged out of criminal activity. And those people are living, those 8,000 people, they're living right at the intersection of racial inequality and pandemic because they're stuck. And it's not their fault that they're stuck in this time. There are many things that may be their fault, but this is not among them. Um, so I'm going to kind of just talk a little bit more about uh, another question we were asked coming into this panel, or I was asked coming into this panel, which is what role should decarceration play in light of public health and public safety? And we've talked about gun violence and we've talked about the pandemic. Um, and we've talked about slogans. I've heard earlier today um, some of the slogans that, that, that protesters are chanting, uh, free them and decarcerate and um, uh, defund the, the the hashtags that you hear every day. Um, I want to kind of say that we, we are not an activist organization at Restore Justice. We're a very practical organization, and we think decarceration, regardless of how you feel about the broader movement, is a smart public health and public safety strategy. 
Um, so the simple answer to the question of what role decarceration should play in this larger public safety and public health movement is a big one. Um, Dr. Zike, our fabulous public health director in the state of Illinois, often reminds us that COVID-19 is a novel virus. There's much we don't know. But one thing that was hammered home in the 100 plus press briefings that the governor and Dr. Zike did with us every day during the pandemic, the beginning months of the pandemic, was that there are two major ways to combat COVID, particularly in aggregate settings. One is to create more space in those settings as much as possible, make possible social distancing. And two is to dive deep into testing and contact tracing and health practices within these facilities. So decarceration is a way to create space for social distancing in facilities that are not built for social distancing. They're not built for airflow and for ventilation. Then Illinois Justice Project Director Sharon Mitchell went further. Incarceration is not only handled unequally throughout the state, he says, it's not even doing what people have been led to believe it's doing, reducing crime and violence. We know that our city and state combined spend billions of dollars every year on police and incarceration. We heard that in the panel before, uh, those numbers out there. And we know that much of that money is spent in the communities that we talk about, like the ones I'm from. So if you know Paula Wolf, you, you know this, she talked about this all the time, uh, before COVID, if you combine the number of people in the criminal justice system, those in the 92 adult jails around the state, the 16 juvenile detention centers, the more than 20 adult prisons, the five juvenile prisons, and all those in probation or mandatory supervised release, we'd have a population larger than any city in the state of Illinois with the exception of Chicago. So we'd have Chicago, we'd have all those folks that are caught up in the system. Uh, and then we have, you know, Aurora, Naperville and Joliet. That's, that's before COVID. So we know that the footprint of the justice system is massive and we know the investment is massive as well. But that investment is concentrated in policing in courts and incarceration. That is how we invest in black lives in the state. So then the question we have to ask is how effective is that investment? And I think COVID is starting to teach us that our footprint doesn't always have to be that large. We can reduce arrests, we can make our jails smaller, we can make our prisons smaller. We know the prison population is down about 16% in the last six months. We can make those changes, not, not enough. And certainly racial issues, as Joe we talked about, but not enough. But with that said, listen, gun violence, that's, that's an issue. We got to talk about that. I'm sitting in a community that's been affected by it. I've always lived in those communities. And we've seen a surge in the past month, but we've had declines in gun violence and declines in the population of the jail year after year after year. So I think there's little correlation between how much we incarcerate and how safe we are from gun violence. We, we see all over the country elevated levels in the last couple months. But I think that speaks to a broader concern that justice system is being presented to fix problems it can't even hope to fix. We live in a world where incarceration is our main violence prevention strategy. And every weekend and every morning, we read stories in the newspaper of the failure of that strategy. I was talking on the phone yesterday with a man in charge of operations of a large uh, intervention program, which worked with young men to get them on the right track, get them to be peaceful adults. And we've had many conversations before, but I could hear the frustration in his voice 
because he knows the basic truths and I know the basic truths and the system isn't responsive to them. We were talking about the people who are caught carrying a firearm, the type of offense that makes up a vast majority of gun offenses in Cook County. I'd love for people to check out a report by Loyola. Uh, Dave Olson just released it, um, talking about how we treat uh, gun crimes in the county. And the person I was talking to was so exasperated because he knew and I knew that stays in jail and prison don't address the conflicts that drive violence. Stays in jails and prison don't create the opportunities that divert kids and young adults from a lifestyle that fuels this violence. You're listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm Craig Delamore, and you're hearing from a forum examining the courts and putting people behind bars. I was the moderator, and the participants were Illinois Supreme Court Justice Ann Burke, Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle, Joby Cates, the Director of Restored Justice, and Sharon Mitchell, Director of the Illinois Justice Project. The issue of bond has been a thorny one. Mayor Lightfoot, like her predecessor Rahm Emanuel, has suggested that the courts often release dangerous criminals back onto the streets on bond while holding more and more lower-level nonviolent defendants behind bars. Cook County courts now have guidelines that are supposed to govern that, and Chief Justice Ann Burke says judges are not supposed to be afraid to release people if the indications are that they should. And with the bond court reform, I must say that, as thanks to Kim Fox, um, the state's attorney's office, they objected to every recommendation for a bond by the public defender for decades. That was the custom and practice. Well, there is no custom and practice in justice. Every detainee deserves to be looked at by the judge individually and be heard. And that's happening uh, with the public defender's office and lawyers and the judge now because of bond court reform. Um, statewide, you were talking about electronic monitoring. Um, you know, Cook County and large uh population areas are really the only ones that are using any kind of um, electronic monitoring. If you look statewide, um, the uh, most places can't afford it, number one. Um, they're being, if they are being used in more rural areas, it's mostly domestic violence situations. And the cost of electronic monitoring is huge. If even in Cook County, if we had electronic, the money that was used for electronic monitoring to help with housing for some of the people who actually can't go anyplace, they have no place to go when they're, you know, removed from jail or not sent to jail, they have no, no home, no place to be. If we had housing for them and services, and I would like to think of pretrial service people being mentors as opposed as to probation officers, pretrial officers. I would like to have people there, more of them, to have iPhones, to text them. How are you doing? Don't forget you have court tomorrow. Have some personal contact. Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle says courage is the key. You know, I think what it takes is um, the courage of your convictions. If you believe in criminal justice reform, if you believe that our criminal justice system has disproportionately impacted people of color and poor people more broadly, then you have to stand up and say that. And you have to talk about the challenges in terms of racial justice. And that's what I've tried to do in my tenure as, as county board president, to keep the focus on the inequities in the criminal justice system and try to make the system fairer for everyone who comes in contact with it. We don't in the county have any choice about who's brought into the system. That's local police uh, forces, local police departments. But we can do our best to see that people are treated fairly once they come into the system. And we had a system 
in which uh, the poor were profoundly disadvantaged because of the reliance on cash bond. And we, had, we still have a system which is profoundly racist, like everything else in this country. You know, we live, we live in a profoundly racist country. And nowhere is that um, racism more apparent, more laid bare than our criminal justice system. And we have to acknowledge that. And uh, as, as one of the, the panelists suggested, we have to look at everything we're doing in terms of, you know, what, what's really contributing to racial justice. And, you know, when we have disparate outcomes based on race. We have to take a look at why those, why those disparate outcomes are, are happening and what we can do to change them. So I guess what I'd say in, in um, Justice Burke has suggested that judges need the courage of of the, their convictions and need to follow the law. And I'd say the same for elected officials. You have to have the courage of your convictions and you can't um, allow false narratives. And the present false narrative is that somehow the criminal justice reform efforts are the cause of the violence and uh, uptick in violence in Chicago in this year. This year, You can't let those narratives stand. You have to um, address them at every point, challenge them at every point, and lay out the facts for people, which is what we've been trying to do. Joby Cates of Restore Justice continued Tony Preckwinkle's thoughts. I think we get stuck a little bit in this sort of either-or thinking that we either have a criminal legal system or we have total freedom and anarchy where everybody gets to do whatever they want and there are no consequences. We also have a, a very short-term brain collectively where we see people as they are when they're 17 and not as they might be when they're 40 or when they're 70. And I think those two factors have created, you know, you called it a, a false narrative, President Preckwinkle. I mean, it's, it's nonsense. It's not based in any kind of human reality. We have many, many choices. For, for example, with sentencing, I know President Preckwinkle has personally been involved in some of the campaigns we've uh, worked on with folks like Senate President Harmon and the former uh, House uh, Majority Leader, Barbara Flynn Curry, to bring some sort of rational middle ground back to our sentencing practices. And the fact that it is almost impossible to pass a bill in a democratic state, fundamentally democratic state in the General Assembly, that would make it possible for uh, a 15-year-old who's serving a very, very long sentence to get a parole review, the fact that it took five years to count, to get those votes counted for a 15-year-old to get a review on, say, a 70-year sentence, that we're still arguing about that when the rest of the country in many ways has moved on. Many other states and the federal government even have taken a look at some of these practices. But we have some very entrenched actors in this space who um, I think have really uh, fed the false narrative and, and like, a, like a fire, it, it's, it's a flame right now. And Sharon Mitchell of the Illinois Justice Project kept chipping away at the perception that simply locking more people up is the way to reduce gun crimes. I think there's a luxury and a privilege of being fearful without being concerned about being effective. And the fact of the matter is our approach has not been effective. When I talk to the folks that run these organizations that are on the ground, that are looking to make our community safer, none of them say that just locking people up for a couple years changes the situation. They talk about people's access to guns. They talk about people's lack of access to jobs. They don't talk about locking somebody up, making us safer. 
we lock lots of folks up. Most of the folks that we lock up are people who are possessing guns when it comes to gun offenses, not who are shooting those guns. And we know that the vast majority of people who are accused of shooting those guns are incarcerated, whether it's effective or not, pre-trial. And we know whatever happens at bond court, folks still face consequences because they still have a case no matter what happens, whether they get a cash bond or an I-bond. If the evidence is there, they'll hear accountable. With that said, I think it's important to note that we have a system that President Parkwinkle has tried to stamp out uh, that replaces risk in making those determinations with money. And that has meant that we have many more people who are incarcerated, not because they are across the state, uh, people that are there because uh, they're risky, not poor. So I think we need to end the use of cash bond all across and focus on things uh, if we're going to make incarceration decisions, which should be small, we should focus on risk. I think we also need to think about how our overuse of incarceration takes away from the actual issues that make communities safer. And I think that we do have movement on that issue. I think about the R3 program, which takes 25% of cannabis tax revenue, identifies objective communities that are objectively, identically, objectively identified communities and puts money for violence prevention and reentry services. We need to be doing things like that instead of just incarcerating people because we're scared. Still, more must be done to end gun violence. And Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle said county government's coming up with $5 million to invest in violence interrupters who will try to prevent the violence before it happens. It doesn't help us to invest in more police, frankly. We have to invest in more violence interrupters. We have to invest in the communities that are struggling um, with unaddressed trauma, you know, high unemployment, you know, food deserts, uh, lack of access to health care. If you, if you overlay um, on communities, you know, which communities are most impacted by COVID-19, which communities are most impacted by violence, um, they're the same communities, <laughs> they're the same places. You know, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, um, three times as many Latinx and black folks have been impacted uh, by the disease in proportion, right? The proportions are three times as much in black and brown neighborhoods as they are in white communities. And so the, the, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, as I said earlier, has basically laid bare, stripped bare the inequities that were already there and compounded those inequities in profound and terrible ways. I would just like to say, Craig, um, on following up on Justice Breckwinkle's um, point here, is that um, there is a, one of the co-conveners is an, an organization called the Alumni Association, and it's a group of former incarcerated individuals. Those individuals call themselves former consumers of the criminal justice system. And President Preckwinkle um, absolutely, eight years ago plus, when this organization began, had them come to the table of our Justice Advisory Council and advise us on what we needed to do with those people coming out of the jail. They are mentors to people coming out of the jail. They also try to get jobs for people coming out of the jail. So jobs is an important piece here. We need to work with our business people, our community, to make sure people who are coming out of jail, coming out of Department of Corrections, have a place to live and a place to work so they can become 
become contributing members of our society. We know through the Alumni Association, they're actually working in bomb court with the families there. They have other jobs that the uh, Justice Advisory Council has given them uh, contracts for and getting other people jobs. So that's an important piece of this. So they can be have hope and be proud of themselves and be contributing members of our society. And it, that does work. And those people should be at the table of whatever decision making we do, other than my decision of court. <laughs> but outside of that, I don't want to see them in court again. <laughs> sure. I'll add one more thing to it. You know, we assume a level of efficiency in the justice system that is not deserved. Uh, we assume that every person who's in jail and every person who's prison are there because somebody who knows everything about the situation knows that they're dangerous and the day they set foot out of that jail or prison, they'll wreak mayhem. And I don't see any evidence for that. I think Joby's point was important. There aren't people who are making decisions about who's incarcerated that are sitting down with people a year, mm -hmm. two years, five years down the line and taking that accurate uh, account of who that person is now. So while I know it's politically expedient uh, to keep as many people in jail and prison as, as possible, and we have leaders like the ones on this call that are fighting against that urge, the fact of the matter is we can, do be, we can be doing much more with individuals in terms of getting them out, and we can be doing much more with the resources that we use to keep those folks in so that we can actually change the environment. I want to thank Supreme Court Chief Justice Ann Burke, Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle, Joby Cates of Restore Justice, and Sharon Mitchell of the Illinois Justice Project for participating. And thanks, too, to the Illinois Justice Project and Cabrini-Green Legal Aid for allowing me to take part. To our listeners, if you would like a copy of this program or to hear it again, please visit our website at wbbmnewsradio.com. Just follow the podcast links. You can also find our podcasts on radio.com. I'll be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.